pressed against an Achaean advance led by Ajax and Diomedes, Hector and Aeneas receive word of an omen from Helenus, son of Priam, the seer. The Trojan army is to hold the line, while Hector is to return to Troy and direct his mother, the queen of Troy, to arrange a sacrifice to Athena, a sacrifice to entice the goddess of wisdom to pity Troy and hold back Diomedes. Hector obeys and returns to the palace of Priam, a magnificent structure that houses the 50 sons and 12 daughters of King Priam. Hector tells Hecuba, his mother and queen of Troy, to perform the sacrifice. It is notable that she is to lay before Athena the robe she personally prizes the most, which illuminates the personal sacrifice being asked of her. Hecuba obeys, but Athena refuses to listen to the Trojan prayers. It is not unremarkable that Homer immediately follows Athena's rejection with the introduction of Paris into the narrative. Mr. Johnny come lately himself. Exactly. Hector chastises Paris, who has remained in his bedroom since his duel with Menelaus, and exhorts him to return to the war. Before returning to the war, Hector visits his wife, Andromache, and his son, Ska Mandrius. Ska Mandrius. Ska Mandrius. We've got it. Who the Trojans affectionately called Lord of the City. Hector then rendezvous with his brother, Paris, and returns to fight the Achaeans. Welcome back to Ascend Podcast, the Great Books Podcast with Deacon Harrison Garlic. I am Adam Minahan, and we're going through book six today. We're, we've gone through book five. Book five was long, so congrats to anybody who has made it through book five, because that was a, uh, an interesting book. Right? But a wonderful book. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it was, it was a lot going on, but uh, I really enjoyed it, and I enjoyed this, uh, this book as well. Book seven, we'll get to... Not a fan. <laughs> you have some but, objections. But uh, I liked book six. Hector returns to Troy. Again, we're using uh, Fagel's edition, the Iliad. Uh, if you guys are, are going through it together in, in a group, take a picture, send it to us, Use a, uh, go on social media, tag us in it. We'd love to, to share it with others because, again, the, the goal is to get people to read the good books together so we can form ourselves. Correct. And that way we can be, uh, you know, teach our children uh, what it means to be a virtuous person, what it means to be a holy person, right? Um, and and to be more well-rounded, so we can uh, see different fallacies, different uh, objections to modernism, and everything else. Yeah, so we're seeking the true, the good, and the beautiful in the text. The great books typically start with Homer, right? Mm-hmm. This is where we start. We start with the poetic. We start with how this kind of forms our imagination. I would hold very strongly, right, that that reading Homer and learning to read attentively uh, will make you a better reader of Holy Scripture. Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So in all things, right, we find truth where it is. All truth is God's truth, and so we continue to adhere to it, to pursue it, uh, to love it, and to uh, see where I think providence has set it inside the Iliad, mm-hmm. right? And I think, too, that the book six uh, has very much a theme of the family, and I think that's something that we need to explore. It's somewhat bookended by this. It offers, um, I think, a very tender picture 
of Hector returning to his family, and we can explore that. And I think particularly it sets a contrast between Hector and Achilles. And this is going to become very apparent inside the book. Mm-hmm. And so I think this is where we're starting to get some of these uh, comparisons. We also have uh, Bellerophon. It's a fun Bellerophon. Bellerophon. It's like you have almost have to have a bunch of peanut butter in the roof <laughs> of your mouth when you say it like Bellerophon. 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 So we have uh, the story of Bellerophon in this too, which which uh, is subtle, but actually also points to the importance of family mm-hmm. as well. So I think there's a theme of family here that we can explore. Yeah. So as we turn to book six, uh, we're starting off with a push by the Achaeans, uh, not the Achaeans, the Achaeans. I, I am always going to be tempted to read all of these as if they were Latin. Like just that's, I'm just going to throw that out there. It's, it's going to be a drama K, not a drama key, right? It's almost a long E sound almost every time with the Greek, even though half of these are Latinized anyway. So it's sometimes it's just a choose your own adventure, but we're trying, right? This is we're why I try. just read it for the original text. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I bet. Okay, so uh, we start off, the Achaeans uh, are pushing up against the Trojans. We get Ajax, we get Diomedes, etc. The first thing I kind of want to point out here is we have what I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Okay, is the first taking of a captive. A captive that we're going to ransom, and we're going to see how these these mechanics work. We, we do have, obviously, the opening in book one. We had, you know, the, the whole episode over the slave girls that have been taken and the fighting between Agamemnon and Achilles. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's central. But here we have, right, where there's actually a Trojan soldier that is taken captive. He's not speared, yeah. you know, in the eye or the chest or everywhere else that yet. we get the story. Um, yeah, yet. Uh, he's actually taken captive. And so it's interesting to see how this works. So let's look at a little bit of the mechanics of this. Okay. So he's taken captive. Uh, this is a little past uh, 40. And, you know, he goes and he hugs his knees. So this is a sign, right? This is this is that begging. Uh, we've seen this before. We actually saw this with Thetis um, hugging the knees of Zeus, right, as she asked, mm-hmm. right, for these things. And so he's pleading for his life. He says, hey, uh, basically... My father is very rich, like uh, he'll pay you a ransom. So this is the mechanics, right? So you'll ransom these people, you'll take them captive, you'll tell their father their house, right? I have him, and then you get more treasure out of the thing. So you just don't get to loot his body, you also get this treasure. Mm-hmm. As one small aside, it's interesting when he lays out the treasure, so this is after 50, line 50, he says, treasures are piled up in my rich father's house, bronze, gold, and plenty of well-wrought iron. So we are, usually iron doesn't catch our attention. Mm-hmm. It should catch our attention, the Iliad. We are right at the end. Like we, we are moving from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age. Iron is um, a precious metal, right? So if they're going to talk about treasures, later in the Iliad, we're going to see uh, iron given out as like a, as a gift, right? Um, as like uh, a reward for performing well. So it's just something to note, because typically we wouldn't care about iron, right? We'd pass right Mm -hmm. over it. But again, this is the Bronze Age. Iron actually uh, is a valued metal, and we're kind of shifting out of the Bronze Age here. So just a little side note. Uh, I also think it's always, it doesn't ever end well as a captive if you go and tell them exactly where all of the treasure is. (laughs) <laughs> you know, that like, could be true. Here's a guy who's he's captive. He's like, no, don't kill me. My father has a bunch of gold and precious metal in his backyard, 
30 paces from his back porch right. you know, that he can give you. It's Here's like, your map with an X on right, it. Right, yeah. It's like, right. does that ever end well? I don't think so. Well, it ends up, unfortunately, becoming a moot point because <laughs> exactly. uh, Menelaus, like, right? He So we had this, right? Menelaus actually says his heart was moved. Mm-hmm. And he's about to hand him. So, right, he would hand him back and he'd go by the ships and et cetera. Agamemnon just rushes up and says, you know, so soft, dear brother, you know, why? Why such concern for the enemies? And then he gives this, like, very scorched earth statement, right? Basically, everyone's going to die. And he says, uh, this is just before 70, no baby boy still in his mother's belly, not even he escapes. All Ilium, or the uh, Troy, right? The Iliad is the story of Ilium, of Troy. Uh, all Ilium blotted out, no tears for their lives, no markers for their graves. And Menelaus, it's interesting, um, you know, Menelaus shoves him, and then Agamemnon actually, right, stabs and kills the uh, prisoner in his side, right, in his flank. Yeah, so he stabs him in the, in the side and the back. Yeah, and back on his side, the fighter went up, face up. Yeah. Like, I don't know. When I first read that, my first uh, my gut reaction was like, if I was a if I if I was like the uh, part of the army and my king did that, I'd be like, where is the honor? Like, where's the honor? Like, are you kidding me? Like, you're supposed to be setting the example, and you have a prisoner. Like, there's no way that this is, is kosher in the war trade or you know war. Uh, I don't know etiquettes or whatever you want to war call etiquettes. It. Uh, well, if you don't like this, you're really not going to like it when Achilles decides to get into the warfare. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, did that not strike you? Yeah, it did. No, I think I think there's a contrast here, right, between Menelaus who shows mercy and then Agamemnon who shows none. Right. right? I also think, though, which is oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I also think uh, this statement about no baby boy still in his mother's belly, uh, not even he will escape. I think uh, we need to keep this in mind as we recall Hector going back to his family. I think this. I think this statement. I would. I would make a motion that this statement is in here to foreshadow, um, wow. like what's going to happen to like Hector's family. So Hector, when he goes back to Troy, as we'll see, starts to talk about like his fate, his wife's fate, and then he has his son, and and how he treats him is slightly different. But here at the beginning of the text, we're getting a statement that like no one is safe. Not even if he not even his wife was actually still pregnant with his son. No one is safe. Mm-hmm. Right. And I don't I don't think this is by accident. I think Homer is setting up something. Again, we have this kind of familial theme here, and here we see absolutely no mercy, right? Yeah, which is kind of uh the roles were reversed normally, right? So Menelaus a lot of times has shown a lack of prudential judgment in letting his emotions and irascible appetites like um, take control of him. And then Agamemnon is the one that, whether the motives are, are good or not, is the one that normally pulls Menelaus back and says like, no, 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 yeah. let's not do this. Let's let this wouldn't be good for the war. And now you have the, the exact opposite. Menelaus has moved like uh, to pity or to you know to. Some, some kind of compassion. Right. And then uh, Agamemnon just, in a, in a rage, just kills the dude. Yeah. He's, he's running interference again, right, on his brother's um, own judgment. You're correct. Like, Menelaus several times, right, tries to get into duels and things like right. this, and Agamemnon runs interference on him, probably mainly because he thinks if Menelaus dies, it will demotivate the men. Right. But you do get this... this That's why I said, like, whether it's actually a good reason or not, whether his motives are mm-hmm. pure or not, he's still doing it. And then 
the rules are reversed. <laughs> yeah, you do get it. You're correct. You get a mechanic of Agamemnon kind of running interference on his brother. Yeah. Right. Then good old boy, my boy Nestor comes into play. Right. So Nestor uh, comes in uh, and actually, like, you know, finally tells everyone, hey, guys, why don't we um, not try and loot all the corpses and do this and worry about plunder? Like, why don't we actually fight? So, yeah, I think he's good. He's okay. a good judgment. All right. Then we get the omen. Right. So now we're, we're switching over to the Trojan side. And we get this omen. So Helenus which is a son of Priam, which we now understand that there are 50 sons of Priam, right, and 12 daughters. Um, we get this uh, omen. And basically, he's, a, he's reading the flight of birds. And basically, it's twofold. So one is, you got to stand your ground, right? So this is where we're supposed to fight. Don't retreat. Mm-hmm. We're holding, you know, we're going to hold this line. And this is basically given to Aeneas, right? Mm-hmm. This is your job. But then Hector, which is interesting, right? Because Hector's kind of the, the head of the uh, Trojan army, right? He's told he has to go back, right? He's the messenger that the gods have chosen to go back to Troy and arrange the sacrifice, right? To Particularly to gray-eyed Athena, that they're going to give her the loveliest robe, right? So how the queen's closet... It's a very feminine... This whole, co- this whole sacrifice is contextualized in an incredibly feminine uh, aspect, right? So it's the women that are going to go do this. Hec- uh, Hecuba, Hecuba, Hecuba. It's like a coo sound. Hecuba, right, the queen, the Trojan queen, Priam's wife, is going to lead this. She's going to go in front of this female goddess, give her one of her robes. As we mentioned in the narrative in the summary at the beginning, like, it's not just like, go get a robe that is worth a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it is go get the robe that you personally value the most, right? It's interesting. There's a, there's a personal sacrifice going on here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they're asking for something specific, mainly uh, that she'll actually hold back Diomedes from the holy city. Yeah, did you think that the last uh, three stanzas or whatever in, on page 198 was interesting? Right here at the very yeah. bottom, like how they're talking about how Diomedes is the strongest <coughs> and never once did they fear Achilles? Yeah, never once did they fear Achilles, captain of the armies born of the goddess too. Yeah, I mean, Diomedes... Um, yeah, this brings up a good question that I I think it's probably fair to ask um, at some point, right? Maybe not now. Which is how how well would the Trojans do, and maybe even the Argives, right? The the Achaeans. How well would they they do without Achilles, but then also without any divine interference, mm-hmm. right? Like who's actually benefiting from the gods well, like it would already in. be over if they right. didn't have interference from the gods oh because of the um truce right yeah that could be true maybe maybe it would just simply be over so yeah we, you're correct the flag this right diomedes is 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 currently at least in this paragraph right said that uh, troy fears him more um than achilles right which is notable yeah they're very notable actually so, uh, okay, so Hector's returning back to Troy. He, he obeys the omen. Uh, this is something to note, uh, that he actually obeys the omen. He might have a different reaction later in the text. So, but here he obeys. He goes back. He leaves the men. And as he's going back, now we get this very long... Um, I mean, this is like very quintessential two guys go out in a no man's land, and we have a very long description of... Who was your grandfather? Who's your dad? Where'd you come from? Like, how are right. you feeling today? 
Are you feeling to right kind of deal? So we get Glaucus on the Trojan side. No, excuse me. We get Glaucus, yeah, on the Trojan side, mm-hmm. and then Diomedes, right, on the Greek side, and they they actually go out into no man's land. And Diomedes, it's interesting here for whatever reason. Um, I'm open to insights. He's given the epithet that's usually given to Menelaus, right? He's the Lord of the War Cry. Diomedes opens up. And it's interesting. He says, you know, who are you, my fine friend? You know, he kind of, there's this braggadocious thing. Mm-hmm. And then he, he kind of gives these caveats like, but wait, if you're a mortal god, I'm not fighting you. And you have right. to tell me, right? right? Like, wait. <laughs> so there's like this huge, like, braggadocious, like... You can come to the party, but wait, are you a cop? You have to tell me. Right. You, you have to tell me. And this is actually kind of interesting because uh, if you remember <laughs> from book five... He's actually still cognizant of Athena's warning to mm-hmm. not fight, fight the, the gods, gods except for Aphrodite. <coughs> Excuse me. So even after... You guys can play a drinking game for every time that Deacon coughs, you have to take a drink. Yeah, welcome to a podcast with a Deacon with allergies. So get ready for the next three months. So um, anyway, so he he's still actually obeying her command. Right. And it's interesting because he's even doing this after she kind of told him, don't worry about it, and gets in the chariot with him and strikes down Ares. Mm-hmm. So I, I just thought it was notable because I think that it's on the back of his mind. Yeah. And we, as we discussed in book six, uh, he's being, I think he has a great piety and obedience towards her. Remember, she comes in and kind of chastises him, actually calls him out as not being worthy of his father. Mm-hmm. And he responds very much in piety and a certain softness in saying, hey, I'm actually doing what you told me. And right. then she talks about him being the joy of her heart. So just a noting here that he's still keeping this in mind and, and doing caveats on his kind of uh, braggadocious ways. The one thing to note, so after, after 150, we get a mention of Dionysus, the god Dionysus, right? And his, his kind of wild women, the maenads or minads. I just want to make a little note here. So, who is he? Like, why? Who is this? Like, he's just kind of been referenced. Mm-hmm. Dionysus is—he's uh, the—he's the youngest of the gods, if you will. He's the last one to really join the Olympian pantheon. Um, he is, I think, on his face, uh, the god of wine, of kind of. Sometimes he's presented as a very jolly, just kind of jovial. God, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, the gift of wine is something that makes men feel good. It makes men forget their problems, you know, things like this. And, you know, his main ads or mine ads are these um, almost like crazed women, these women in ecstasy. He has a lot of things about him that are very unique. Um, you know, for instance, he's a full-fledged God, but his mother was immortal. But he came out as a full-fledged God, mainly because his mom dies, skipping a lot of details, his mom dies in childbirth, and Zeus takes him and actually sews him up in his own hip, his thigh, to hide him from Hera, and he develops in Zeus and then comes out. Um, That's pretty weird. It is interesting. Uh, he also has typically no altars or temples. Uh, the Minads, like, he is worshipped in nature. They go out and they do these things, and so huh. they go to the mountains. Uh, they in have nature, huh? Yeah, they have these things. What's interesting here, and I, I'm being very broad because I think his cult is actually fascinating, and it's something hopefully we get into on the podcast at some point. But here, it's really funny because uh, Dionysus is basically afraid, um, you know, and he goes and uh, basically hides under 
Thetis, right? He hides, like he's scared, he's terrified in this kind of narrative they're sharing. He dives beneath the surf, and he hides under the sea nymph, Thetis, who is, you know, of course, Achilles' mother, right? Pressed him against her breast, right? He's numb with fear. He shivers racked. I mean, this is kind of ridiculous, right? I mean, he's a god, um, and he's... Just act like one. Yeah, and he's kind of fighting this. And if I remember correctly, the person he's actually running from is a mortal. Um, and so what it, why I want to point this out is that if anyone's kind of familiar with um, his cult, by the time you get to like classical Greece, um, like with Euripides, uh, he's a playwright. He writes a po- or excuse me, he writes a play about Dionysus and like him becoming a god and these kind of things. Hmm. Uh, it's called the Bacchae or the Bacchae, and Dion- it could not be any different than this. In that one, he is he is raw, primal, like. Um, like a vitalism, like his his cult is sex and violence, right? It is hmm. orgies. It is ripping apart animals like raw, eating them raw, killing them in the wilderness. Um, I mean, it is. It could not. He makes people go mad. He makes people do terrible things to their own family members. Like he he is. Um, I mean, anyone I think from a Christian tradition reading it would see it very much as demonic because also one of the notes that Euripides makes in his play is that while all these people are, are in ecstasy doing horrific things to each other or having orgies or tearing apart bull like you know women tearing about apart bulls with their bare hands and eating it raw etc as Dionysus um, influences him to do all this he's always wearing the smiling mask the actor's always wearing mm. the smiling mask right not want to see women ripping so, bulls with their, with their <laughs> bare hands that would be just gnarly well it's it's less violent than what they end up doing which is ripping yeah. apart their own family members yeah so my point here though is like as we kind of are watching this kind of uh, development of greek thought as we kind of are going to track we have our year with homer and then we're getting to other texts and track this mm-hmm. this is something has happened mm-hmm. something has happened between homer and the classical period because this cult of Dionysus has changed dramatically. It's interesting, in Euripides, he gives basically a new, not a new, but he the whole play is about the origin story of Dionysus mm. and that he actually is a god. And it's very notable here that that kind of like primal vitalism chaos that he represents in classical Greece, here he's running away and hiding under a sea nymph because he's this kind of, jovial wine god that like can't even deal with it right so something has happened between these two time periods and that's something for us to explore uh at some later date so it's interesting though just that he mentions him here because sometimes it there is some debate of like you know what does homer know of this cult well he's a god and he's here but he's scared and, Mm. and weak and afraid so just as a kind of a side note okay so what we get here between Glaucus... Thanks for the uplifting side note. Yeah, thanks. We'll try to get into more <laughs> family-friendly, <laughs> the theme of families. Um, you know, so just, you know, I just, I'm just going to you know point things out as I see them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Glaucus then... Okay, so we're getting this kind of back and forth. Glaucus then... Uh, it's interesting. He responds to this invitation with a somewhat nihilistic phrase on 171. He says, like the generations of leaves are the lives of mortal men. Right, which is uh, beautiful in a certain sense. Right now, the wind scatters the old leaves across the earth. Now, the living timber bursts with new buds, and spring comes round again. 
And so with men, as one generation comes to life, another dies away. But about my birth, if you'd like to learn it well... So anyway, he says, here's this statement, we're, we're living, we're dying, we're but leaves, but by the way, I'll tell you my story here in No Man's Land. So he goes on this long thing that actually draws from a lot of the class... Or no, excuse me, not classical, a lot of the Greek mythology that predates Homer. So we're going to get introduced to several characters. So first we get Sisyphus, and he's on 180. This is a wily king. Actually, this translation calls him the wily, wiliest, that's a fun word, wiliest man alive. Wiliest. This, this is the guy that just like delighted in trying to outsmart the gods, like, which is not, as we can see, a great habit to have. Um, and he eventually, he's somewhat famous. Um, Albert Camus, the French existentialist, kind of talked a lot about him. He becomes somewhat famous because he is How eventually... You know about that dude? Albert Camus? Yeah. Because <clears throat> I really get a lot of, a lot of tangents tonight. Uh, because I'm a convert, right? Yeah, right. And so when I was leaving, uh, when I was leaving like charismatic Methodist word of faith, I cannot imagine you as a charismatic. I would love to see you. Nope. Practice. So worship. We're gonna move on. So just think about long purple banners and stuff like that. So not saying I waved any, but they were they were present. Anyway, and tambourines. Here we go. Right. So when I was transitioning out of that, right, uh, when my, when I, 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 I couldn't, I was trying to find real Christianity. I had a relationship with Christ. I knew, but this could not be Christianity. Mm-hmm. But I also got into Kierkegaard, if anyone knows who that Kierkegaard, is. Kierkegaard, yeah. right? <coughs> is it Kierkegaard? Kierkegaard. That's okay. how I, yeah. Okay. yeah. This is, part, we just, you know, just say it with hey. confidence and move on. Yeah, for sure. So which led me down kind of an existentialist path. And then I read a lot of Albert uh, Camus, The Stranger, The Fall, The Plague, et cetera. Um, oh, yeah, of course. And so one of the things, though, is that he's basically, in his existentialist kind of viewpoint, life is absurd. And so what happens here, the syphysis, is that he's eventually, like, his, his cleverness, et cetera, is basically punished by his, his punishment in hell, in Hades, is he's just going to roll a boulder up a hill and then it's going to roll back down and then he has to roll it back up and then he has to roll it back down and then he has to roll it back up. Mm. And that's, thank you for being so clever against the gods. Like this is what you get to do for all eternity. Uh, the reason I mentioned Camus is a lot of people only know the myth of Sisyphus through Camus because Camus wrote that this is life. Like that's all life is, is rolling the boulder up and down and up and down and up and down. Shallow way to look at life. Right. It's absurd. Yeah. And you have to find some kind of delight in it. Obviously, uh, we find that to be quite flat uh, and devoid of probably just natural observations just on life. It's flat as you're rolling a boulder up Correct. and down. Yeah, well played. Thanks. I like um, that. So that's his myth. He's He's got to roll the boulder up and down and up and down. So um, he has a son, um, Glaucus, which is not the Glaucus that's obviously being in the duel right now. And then Glaucus Sider's brave Bellerophon. Bellerophon is one of like the there's a there's a handful of main heroes that predate the Trojan War, and so you're gonna get Hercules or Heracles, Bellerophon, Theseus, uh, and um, Perseus, right? Are the ones that you're gonna get right? So you get stories of the labors of Hercules. You got the Minotaur. You have uh, Jason the Argonauts, I guess, would be in there as well, going after the Golden Fleece. Um, so you kind of have like these stories mm-hmm. of these heroes that kind of predate the Trojan War, and they're pulling from these myths. So Bellerophon comes through, 
And Bellerophon is one of these. He's one of these pre-Trojan heroes that we need to know about. Uh, what did you make of... Um, do you remember this narrative? So he Bellerophon's like a good man. He's doing these things. And then um, someone else's wife, right, starts to lust after Bellerophon. And she tries to seduce him. This is around 190, line 190. Mm-hmm. And he can't do it. She, she, she can never seduce the man's strong will, right? His seasoned, firm resolve, right? So he is what we would call being virtuous. So what does she do? She goes straight to the king and blurts out lies, telling him that Bellerophon is bent on dragging me down with him in his lust, mm-hmm. though I fight him all the way, right? Um, do you, any, any other story come to your mind when you, read, when you heard that? Um, no, not off the top of my head. I did find that interesting. Um, but there, it reminded me of um, Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Joseph and who? Potiphar. Potiphar? Yeah. Like the, um, so remember Joseph's uh, story in scripture, right? So he's sold by his brothers mm-hmm. into uh, slavery, slavery in Egypt. Right. And then he goes and he serves in Potiphar's house as oh, a. I that, that, that's his name. Yeah. yeah, remember? He serves as. Um, I don't remember if Potiphar is his name or his title, um, but he serves in his house, and it's literally the exact same dynamic, right? The the wife of Potiphar is trying to seduce Joseph, mm-hmm. um, but then uh, how she gets him is then she accuses him of trying to yeah, seduce sure. her. Right. And I just noticed that this is it's uh, interesting. It's the exact same um, kind of mechanics that are actually working here. Yeah. So then um, we have Bellerophon is they. You know, what are we going to do with him now? He gets this wonderful little um, kind of uh, narrative point where he carries his own letter for him to be executed. So Bellerophon then is sent to the king of Lycia and with a message. And the message says, you need to kill Bellerophon. Um, I haven't found proof of this yet, but this actually happens in Shakespeare's Hamlet. Uh, two of the characters, if, if you have read Hamlet or can recall it, two of the characters actually are carrying a letter, right? Um, and this basically the same thing happens to them, right? They think they're carrying a letter for uh, Hamlet to be killed, and he switches things out, and it's actually for them to be killed. I, it would be interesting to see if uh, anyone's drawn a connection where Shakespeare is actually pulling from this narrative, because mm-hmm. it's, again, the same kind of... I'm sure there's guys out there who are Shakespearean. I am sure. So there's... Um, I'm sure Joseph that. Pierce has, has jumped on this somewhere. Um, so there's, so there's, again, we're looking at like the same mechanics Mm -hmm. in these stories. So Bellerophon goes off. They don't, they don't want to kill him directly. So they do what most people do is they send you on some kind of errand, right? So, oh, go, you have to go do this thing for me in which most all men would die. So this is why Bellerophon is kind of, um, has his own legend because his first thing he was supposed to do is to kill the chimera which is this like half goat, half lion, half serpent creature. And yeah, all lion in front, all snake behind, all goat in between. Yeah. Very interesting. And it breathes fire. Right. So, um, Homer's very brief here. He says, Oh, he, and he, you know, he laid her low. Right. One thing that Homer doesn't mention here is that Bellerophon, the way he can kill the chimera is that Bellerophon was a master horseman. And Bellerophon is the person who originally had tamed Pegasus. 
Oh, no kidding. Yeah, and this is the this is the narrative in which Pegasus comes into uh, Greek mythology, hmm. and so it's actually on the back of Pegasus that he fights the Chimera and is able to do this. So then there's other trials and things that he goes through, um, but Bellerophon triumphs, right? And so then Bellerophon ends up having three children himself. Um, one of those, the daughter of Bellerophon, Zeus sleeps with, and this is actually uh, their son is Sarpedon or Sarpedon, right? Who's actually in this the Trojan War, if you remember that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then the other person, uh, the other son of Bellerophon, is the one that actually gives. Um, who sires Glaucus. So now he's actually come, now we've come to the full circle where they're actually in no man's land, right? So this is now Glaucus to Diomedes. And it, there's a line here I really enjoyed a little bit um, before 250, where we have um, this is uh, Glaucus's father speaking to him, and he's going off to Troy, and he says, Always be the best, my boy, the bravest and hold your head up high above the others. Never disgrace the generations of your fathers. I don't know. I liked that. Hmm. I liked that a Mm -hmm. lot. So, long story short, uh, Diomedes then realizes that his family members have hosted Bellerophon in that, if you remember this um, concept of of, uh, guest friendship, right? So the Greeks have this like very... um, Let's you know, feast, and then we'll figure out who you are. Yeah, and actually, you saw it in the Bellerophon narrative, right? He shows up to the king of Lycia. For nine days, they feast. Right? Yeah, and it's like, oh, by the way, yeah. why are you here afterwards, right? So now, this is... <laughs> Which I think is just a bizarre thought. It's just wonderful. Day. I mean, there's like a very thick sense of, of hospitality, um, and that your you know your guests could be gods, right? Which is somewhat... Or your mortal anal- enemy, you don't know. That's true. Or the person you're supposed to kill. But they also, you know, somewhat analogous, you know, to the Hebrew tradition that we see... Um, with, you know, assuming traditional authorship of St. Paul in Hebrews of, you know, people have entertained angels unknowingly by mm-hmm. being hospitable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I marked in there that, but that, uh, you know, his father's wish would always be the best, my my boy, the bravest. Like, because we see throughout several chapters here, uh, and we'll see in Hector in just a few minutes, like a prayer to his son. So it mm-hmm. parallels pretty well right there. Yeah, this is another, so this shows us this, like, Guest friendship and these bonds of guest guest friendship can actually be multi generational. I mean, imagine having this that you find out that like you meet someone, and uh, you realize that your grandfathers right mm. had been friends or even just hosted one another and had this guest friendship bond made, and that is enough to say, you know what, we are not going to duel. <coughs> you know, I'll go kill some of your comrades, you kill my comrades, but we're not fighting each other, and in fact, we're going to give gifts. Right, like we're gonna have yeah. another exchange of gifts, and again, we're seeing this familial theme, these deep bonds that can actually be forged, that actually, you know, can actually endure. These sinews can endure between the two armies. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm up for theories here because I'm not entirely sure why. But then they give the gifts, and Zeus swoops in and steals Glaucus's wits away, and he trades his gold armor for bronze with Diomedes. Right, a worth of a hundred oxen for just nine. Bad trade, yeah. It's not great. I'm not sure. I haven't found like a, I haven't found a substantial reason why Zeus uh, jumps in and does that, um, but he does. So, so now we get Hector returning to Troy. 
So let's kind of look at this. So this is around a little after 280 Hector returns. Um, there's a few things that are really notable here. You know, he says to pray to the gods as soon as he comes in, right? They're asking him, how's the war going? Things like this. We already talked about Priam's palace, right? 50 sons, 12 daughters. Um, he tells his mom about the sacrifice. Notice, however, like what I want to point out here is a theme of piety. And so let's kind of talk about what piety is. Uh, just a few kind of like observations in the text, right? He One, he's the one that has chosen to go back and tell Troy that we need to make the sacrifice to the gods. I, I think we need to mark that. Mm-hmm. Two, he's told to, you know, right at the beginning, he enters the city. How are things going? He says, pray to the gods. Three, his mom, the queen, says, listen, let's pour out a cup to Zeus, right? So they they have this tradition, right, of pouring before they, they have wine themselves, right, they'll pour out a cup or pour mm-hmm. out some to Zeus, right? It's a sacrifice, right? I don't, I do not get to consume before this wine, right? Notice that Hector actually um, says no. He's covered with kind of the blood and grime of war, and he refuses to offer a sacrifice uh, to Zeus. This is a little before 320, with unwashed hands, so what really should be like a, a pious act, right? Hey, would you pour you know this wine out? He refuses to do so because he's not in a, a fitting state to actually make this sacrifice, right? Yeah. So I, two things that I that I uh, noted right here is, like you said, one uh, the, the decorum that he understands that he's not fit to to make a sacrifice for the gods right now, which uh, I think is uh, is a I like the, I'm a big virtue of decorum fan. Like I think that right. we lack decorum. In fact, it's just kind of ironic that I'm wearing a, a suit for this. But uh, I like I thought that that was very fitting. But then also his uh, self awareness, his understanding of his appetites. That if he did have wine, that he would lose uh, his nerve for war. That he would mm-hmm. enjoy it too much. And lose it. I'm assuming that's why, right? That, that well, he, he, he says he that explicitly, right? Don't offer me mellow wine, mother, not now. You'd you'd sap my limbs. I lose my nerve for war. Now that it's interesting. It's twofold, right? So you're you're picking up on something that's very key here. Key here. He one is the effect it would have on him, but then he says, and I'd be ashamed to pour a glistening cup to Zeus with unwashed hands, which is more is what I picked up on when I was reading. So it's interesting. He has the natural effect on himself that mm-hmm. he thinks would be. Um, I guess, yeah, um, against decorum, right? Because he's he's still decked out for war, right? right? One thing we don't realize until later on is that he doesn't even take off his helmet mm-hmm. until later, right? So he's still completely decked out for war, covered in blood and grime. Um, and so it's an effect on himself and an effect on how he finds his relationship to God, right? Yeah. Or to Zeus. A natural and a supernatural. Yeah. No, I think that's a good, I think that's a good coupling uh, to point out. So as, as we mentioned, he tells his uh, mother about this sacrifice, right, that she needs to make. Very feminine in, in all of its aspects, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is interesting, right? To a female goddess, you have to offer these robes. Uh, the women need to come with you to do this. Also the priestess, um, uh, obviously by the name I just gave her, right, is a woman. Theono, Theono, Theano. Um, Theano. Theano, yeah, the Italians, just deep, deep-rooted... <laughs> Uh, in Troy. <laughs> so, you know, but he's going to go talk to Paris, who he, quote, let the earth gape and swallow him on the spot. Right, so uh, Hector doesn't seem to have softened too much on uh, what he thinks about Paris. So Hecuba 
uh, obeys, and she goes to do all this. You get prayers to Athena down on 360, right? Queen Athena, shield of our city, glory of the goddesses. Um, now shatter the spear of Diomedes, the wild man, hurl him head down. You know, th- these are somewhat ironic given what we already know of Athena. We like, right. I think any astute readers could realize there is zero way this is going to work. Right. Yeah. Right. Also, not to f- mention, she's definitely not the shield of your city. Right. That's not how it's been working. Two, she's the one that blessed Diomedes, right? So, I mean, this is going downhill. I don't think anyone expects this. Especially when you get to 206, <coughs> the very first line. But Athena refused to hear the prayers. Yeah, Athena refused to hear uh, the prayers. And then, But notice, and then while they prayed to the daughter of mighty Zeus, Hector approached the halls of Paris. And it's just hard for me to believe that Homer is not offering us a juxtaposition there, mm-hmm. right? Why is Athena refusing that? Well, here's Paris, and Paris has done something. You know, we're still trying to kind of figure this out. Um, Homer hasn't really let us in on it yet, but obviously Paris has upset the gods. Paris is at the center of why we even have a war, and I I don't think it's uh, accidental that in Athena's refusal, Homer offers us the introduction of Paris Paris. into the text. So Hector comes in, right? He is uh, covered in uh, blood and grime, and Paris has been sitting here in his bedroom with Helen uh, since his duel with Menelaus. So he's just sitting here chilling. Which would w- just infuriate me if I was Hector <laughs> and I walk in and I'm like, are you kidding me? After all, like, we've already talked about this. Right. <laughs> Bro, we have already talked about you getting your butt up and going back into war and you're still here. Yeah, it's it's interesting too because, like, you know, he doesn't really ask Aphrodite to come save him. Like, she does that on her own. But then he very much makes the decision to stay in Troy. Right. Right. He doesn't have to stay in there uh, with Helen. Yeah, and then you have to have Paris. Like, he, like Helen has to be the one that gives him courage to go and fight. Like, after all this, like, I don't know. I thought this was just, uh, de- like, another insight into, like, Paris's weakness and, and vices is that you, you have to have... How many times does Helen have to come up to you and be like, you need to go fight? Right. Like, get in, get out there. I mean, how many... Is this at least <coughs> the... The sec- at least the second time that I can recall, maybe the third time. Yeah, I mean, we do. Yeah, you're correct. We do. We get more insight into Helen. Um, you know, because one of the things we're tracking, right, is the culpability of Helen. Like, where, mm-hmm. where do we think Helen landed on this? Right. Is she complete? I mean, is Aphrodite just taking over the situation? Is she there? You know, our, our kind of working, as we kind of work through this, I think our working understanding of this is that she seems to have been culpable for leaving Sparta with Paris. Mm-hmm. Um, but now that she's in Troy, she's contrite. And she, Aphrod- Aphrodite is kind of keeping her in this, or at least threatening her. How much yeah. How much could she push against Aphrodite? What if she actually tried to escape? Like, how much is that an excuse? Because she had the opportunity, but then she goes back to him anyway. When is that? Uh, I don't remember. I don't remember what book, but like maybe, maybe at the very beginning. Um, book two or something where like she even recognizes Aphrodite is coming in and seducing and she's like, Oh yeah. But then she does it anyway. Yeah. I mean, as a question is like how much, um, you know, cause she, cause she, she could say no to Aphrodite. Right. Which, to me that gives it the free will. There is free will there. Right. Cause she recognizes, Oh, this is happening to me. Correct. And then she goes and does it anyway. Yeah. I mean, we could discuss, you know, 
maybe like what is she willing to endure to say no to Aphrodite and what would that mean? Right. But then again, you know, there's mortals that do that because they're, they feel convicted to not do something, mm-hmm. right? So here we see... <coughs> and then she gets heavy. She gets a little heavy here. Yeah, so this this passage is really interesting. So 410, um, you know, here's where she... So if you look at the contrite side, right, she actually says here, like, you know, bitch that I am, vicious, scheming, horror to freeze the heart, right? So again, this is coming coming back to she knows she's done something wrong, and maybe, too, you can read just more broadly that she realized she is still doing something wrong. Right. Yeah, do you find this to be despair or like just having a pity party on herself? You know, I m- my read of this is that I think she understands clearly that she did something wrong mm-hmm. in Sparta. Mm-hmm. I think you could broaden that that she is she understands she is still doing something wrong here with Paris. Mm-hmm. But I don't think she has the wherewithal to resist Aphrodite. Right, because she look at I mean look at this language. She basically I mean this this is a very when I read this um, and I marked off in my notes over here like this reminds me of Job. I mean this is a cursing the day I was born. Right, this is mm. this is right out of Job. Right, she says you know let some black whirlwind would have rushed me out to the mountains or the surf just would have taken me, and you know breakers on crash and drags and the waves swept me off before all this had happened. Right, um, you know. She also has this really interesting line. I wish I had been the wife of a better man, someone alive to outrage. Which there's no way Homer's audience is not thinking like, um, you were. You right. were married to Menelaus. Right. Right. Which it's, is why like this whole thing is <coughs> like war is happening, right? Because correct. Menelaus is coming out here to do this exact thing. Like but Paris, it's interesting, like Paris is not even alive to outrage, right? He's just up here, he's not moved. Right, he's just up here in his bed. He's a blind, mad Paris is what it says. Yeah. And so, right, and she, you get another line, right? And all for me, whore that I am, right? She has these just self-deprecating statements. Mm-hmm. Blind, mad Paris. Obviously, obviously, like the larger tradition always looks at lust as being blinding, mm-hmm. right? So it's interesting here, like in the Homeric, this kind of very nascent um, text in the West, I think if you're going to say why is Paris blind, right? I, I think it very much is because of his lust, right? Mm-hmm. Everything counts for Helen, right? Um, he's not going to give her up. The whole war is worth it. He's narcissistic. He's self-centered. He's completely blind, right, when it comes to these things. Then, let me read you this too. She ends her little statement here with something. She says, Oh, the two of us, Zeus planted a killing doom within us both. So even for generations still unborn, we will live in song. Yeah, it's kind of like the opposite of the Magnificat. It's like a horrific contrary to the Magnificat, mm-hmm. right? So why don't you, for can you parse out the Magnificat for us, like what that is? Oh, like all generations will call me blessed. I don't yeah. have it all un- in front of me. Well, no, not like, you have to say it. I was not trying to put you on. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> but no, well, let me get it no, out. Like, hold on. Yeah. Let's not, hold on. No, I, I just meant like, it wrong either. it's Mary, right? right? That's, sorry, yeah. that's what sorry. I meant, okay. right? So it comes like, from Luke. It's right. it's Mary. I'm not yes. trying to, <laughs> <laughs> dang it. I didn't even bring my Bible. All these books, I didn't even bring my Bible. Wow, just, I thought Deacon liked me. Now yeah. he's going to ask me publicly in front of everyone, can you please recite the Magnificat? Why would I do that? Why would I do that? That's not what I want to do. Um, don't ask me questions like that. That's not going to work. So for, I'll just have a coughing fit. I could, but I just can't breathe. Sorry. Allergies. Drink. So, Um, yeah. So, so yes, Mary, 
uh, Gospel of Luke. Uh, that all generations would call me blessed. Right. And this, this, because the, she gets to be the mother of our Lord. Because she says <coughs> yes. Right? So she has the fiat of saying yes. Yeah, so there, it, it, it works. It, both of these things are horrific contraries, right? So Zeus has planted a killing doom within us both, right? Is analogous to or comparable to the fact that the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary, right? And she's actually pregnant, though, with God, with salvation, right. with life. grace, life into the world. Right. So even for generations still unborn, we'll live in song, right? That This horrific thing, right, will happen and all generations will remember it. Mary says very much the same thing, mm-hmm. but hers is, they will call me blessed. Yeah. Where very much here, this is a curse, right? The doom of Zeus has been planted in them both. Right. Um, it also kind of goes that, again, as we track fate, as we track the gods, what's the culpability here, right? Mm-hmm. So Helen says certain things that says she's contrite, but then on other places she says, you know, this is Zeus's fault. Like Zeus had planted doom. So this kind of goes back to like, is it human action? Is it divine action? Like how mm-hmm. do they see these actually like relating to one another? Yeah, this is a very human aspect of, of Helen, right? The, the, even, even the idea of like she's very contrite, but yet she continues to do the same thing again. Like, mm-hmm. you know, how many times do we continue to fall on the same sin, have the same issues and same sins that we were like, oh man, I'm so sorry I did that. And then the next day or the next minute you do the exact same thing again. Right. So yeah. it is, I think, yeah, I think it not only gives a very human aspect of Helen, but then also that you can you bring into the equation how much of that is being played by the gods and how much of that is her own free will. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think she is a very conflicted character. Yeah. And I think it's one to parse out, and it'll be one, it'll be interesting at the end of the Iliad, maybe to take a look and just see how their tradition accepted her. Yeah, so I'll, right? I, I'll, I'll tell you right now, and I, I was hesitant to even t- say this because Ooh. it's probably wrong. Secrets, but, but this is like my first time to read it, right? right. So, I I'm reading this right now as Helen just being. This is just her playing playing everybody. Like I don't think she. Oh really? Yeah. So I'm reading this right now. I'm like, like <coughs> it, I don't know how real. I, I think she's just being. Uh, I don't I don't think she's being contrite here. I don't think she's actually being. At least the when I was first reading it through, that she's being actually sorry. She I think she's having a pity party on herself. Do you? Do you think that... Okay, what about her disdain that she shows Paris? Do you think that that's actually authentic? I think she's just... Disgu- yeah, I think she's disgusted that this is... Like, I made this mistake, mm-hmm. and I made a mistake with this person. So you do like, think she thinks she made a mistake? Yeah, I think she definitely made a mistake, but okay. I think that she's uh, also not wanting to own up to it completely. I think that she wants to have this pity. I want pe- She wants people to feel sorry for her. Hmm. Um, I just don't... Here's a woman who left her husband... So I'm not really trustworthy of uh, what what uh, Helen has to say. My guard is up when she says right. things. She's a little conniving. Uh, she's not. She's shown she's not super trustworthy. Uh, so every time she says things like this, this is why I asked you a little bit ago. I was like, do you think mm-hmm. that she's actually uh, falling into despair, or is this like a pity party? Because I didn't read this as her falling into despair. I right. read this as even. For for the for who she's saying, but also to the reader, like oh, please feel sorry for me. So well, that would be that would be fascinating. That would be like a um, yeah, it'd be interesting. You know, uh, sometimes in classical texts, even with commentaries, um, you will see a commentator will fall into the trap of being seduced or tricked by a character in the text, mm-hmm. right? So I mean that that could be interesting. What do you think her what would be her purpose? in trying to garner pity from, like, Hector. 
Like, what do you think she wants from him? Well, I don't. I mean, I, I'm not. I'm not positive. I mean, I think that she wants everybody who uh, makes mistakes or makes like wants somebody to say it's okay. Some some kind of justification, right? Wants to be justified. Wants to be like say like, hey, listen, it's okay. Mm-hmm. I would have done the same thing. You know, whatever. You know, so you right. you want some kind of affirmation, some justification from somebody else. So as I was reading this the first time, and again, I have not read through all the Iliad, so... That's fine, that's I, where we are. I, I could be very much, I change my mind as we go, but my first read through this was, I don't believe her. Well, I think um, maybe to kind of bolster where you are and maybe to give her um, a, a slightly of a more robust intent here, I think when we read this not too long ago with our kind of Sunday great books group mm-hmm. that we have, right, as we kind of get together with other men and read through this, if I recall correctly, someone actually read this as her trying to seduce Hector. Mm-hmm. So one of the other people in the group, I don't recall who it was, um, their guard is very up with Helen, mm-hmm. right? Like, no, no, nothing that comes out of her mouth is legitimate. And so when she actually starts talking about here a little bit before 4.30, like, uh, well, it's actually Hector responding, but like, don't ask me to sit by you, Helen, right? Love me as you do. You can't persuade me now. Like, wait, is Helen trying to suck right. Hector into like this right. trap? Is she trying to cleave herself from Paris to attach to Hector? Like, is this a seduction scene? Yeah. I mean, I think there's, I, I think there's some layers here that we could work through. Yeah. And um, I think, I think it kind of plays out as we see, um, how does Homer handle Helen right throughout the Iliad and maybe even into the Odyssey. And then also how does a tradition, like, I think, I think when we're done with the Iliad is we kind of maybe have like a look back right, as like these characters. Mm-hmm. It'd be very interesting to see where do these characters land in the overall tradition, right? right? How, did, how did the West, how did the medievals, right? How did where the did Renaissance... Dante put them? Yeah, that's an, actually, that's a great guide. It's just like, right. where did Dante put them? Are these people that... He goes, he puts pagans in heaven um, and also in purgatory. Did they make it there? Are right. they examples of, you know, piety? Are they uh, actually burning in hell? And what ring of hell are they in? Mm-hmm. So I, I think that'll be something, <coughs> excuse me, worthwhile for us to do. So now we get what I took to be uh, a very charming um, kind of passage on Hector, right? So Hector now, and this is where I think the family theme really starts to develop and blossom. We have Hector coming to see his family. A very humanizing Hector, right? Very much. So we get white-armed Andromache. Right, so she has the epithet that's usually reserved for Hera. Right, so here's and just this, as like, a reminder, epithet is. So these epithets are these little phrases attached to the characters, which have multiple uh, purposes. But one one of them is obviously like when you have an oral poem, it helps where you can take them in and arrange them, and so you keep your meter and stuff like that. I think Homer though does play with them insofar as like you know, why they have certain things, why it recalls, why mm-hmm. it connects certain characters together. So when we yeah. see one, when we see these like little phrases that typically are only used for one person and all of a sudden they're attached to another, I think it's worth, right. you know, I noting. that's intentional. Right. Yeah, and we talk about all of this, the, the, the very first episode when we talk about what it, uh, who is Homer and, and what is Iliad, you know, so just to go back, if you have not listened to that, you can sh- should go back and, and, and listen to that. And also looking at Homer as the teacher, 
Right. So we're always looking at, you know, that he's, you know, sometimes too many people read these things and are like, oh, the, the ancients, they're dumb. Like they're not as smart as us because I have an iPhone and Google and like whatever else. Mm-hmm. And so, but I think sometimes when we see these things, it's, if it's worth sitting here and looking at and saying, no, what is Homer trying to teach me right in this text, right? Having that humility to approach him as a student, mm-hmm. um, you know, which is what I'm doing, what you're doing, what, you know, what we're doing as a group. Right. So... Uh, Andromache, this, this whole thing is fascinating. So he sees his wife, um, then he sees, you know, his son, um, his wife though, then chastises him. So, you know, a little after 480, you know, she says, reckless one, my Hector with your own fiery courage will destroy you. Right. Have you no pity for him, our helpless son? So she's playing actually against herself. She plays against her son. You know, they're going to kill you. We get this really uh, rich, like tragic backstory to Andromache. We actually find out that her father, um, if memory serves, her fa- Achilles killed her father. Achilles killed her seven brothers, and then her mother, um, right, was actually bought back at ransom. And then Artemis kills her, right? So her she's coming from this like tragic line where Achilles has actually slaughtered most of her family. Mm-hmm. She knows. Uh, Achilles is, you know, fighting now on these battlefields, right? Obviously right now he's sitting by his ships uh, complaining, but, you know, he's on the battlefield and, you know, she's concerned that Hector's going to uh, be killed. And she says, you know, pity me. So around like 510, right? Pity me. Um, and basically she says like, hey, why don't you, um, you know, just hang back? Like, why, why don't you, you know, why don't you just coach everybody from the walls? Like, why don't you? So she comes up with these things like, you know, yeah, what I could mean, you listening, do? Listening to that as a husband, that would be brutal. It is wife, brutal. Like, you know, you're sitting here fighting the guy who's butchered my whole family, sold my my mom off, then she dies. Mm-hmm. Here I am, your, your, your boy's here with me, you know, be with me. So, no, I... I agree with you. I mean, I think, and I think that what we need to see this as, and I'll, I, I think I can give a little bit of context as to why. I think this very much is a temptation scene. Yeah, it has right? to be. So there is a I warmth. Mean, if you are human, it will te- <coughs> it'll, it will be a temptation. Yeah, I mean, I think there's certainly a warmth here. I don't want to take away that that Hector comes back um, to his family, but I think there's a temptation scene here too with what his wife is offering, and H- and Hector tends to um, you know respond to this right. He says this is after five twenty. You know, I would die of shame to face the men of Troy and the Trojan women trailing their long robes if I would shrink from battle now, a coward, right? He says, you know, to stand up bravely, always... There's only, there's only one room There's only one room for in the family for a coward, and we already got that one. Yeah, well, Paris has uh, monopolized the coward in yeah. the family. So, to stand up bravely, always to fight in the front ranks of the Trojan soldiers, winning my father's great glory, glory for myself, for... In my heart and soul, I know this well. The day will come when sacred Troy must die. Priam must die. And all his people with him, Priam who hurls the strong ashen spear. I mean, we're just kind of mixing in things here. So we've got him with his family. His wife is critiquing him. Hector starts off with, I need to be brave. I will not be ashamed of my soldiers. These things. And then notice that he's like, oh, oh, by the way, like Troy will die. Right, and then he actually goes into, um, you know, he actually goes into then what is going to happen to them all, and I mean, so you're talking about being a father, you're talking about being a husband, and kind of you know having the empathy to put yourself in a situation. Mm-hmm. This would probably not be my response, which is, oh, by the way, 
like you will be sold off into slavery. Right. I got to go do this even though we're all going to die. Yeah. Not only are we all going to die, um, you probably won't die. You will be sold off as a slave. Right. And actually his only hope is I really hope I die. So I don't see you. Yeah. So I don't hear your screams and cries as they're dragging you away. This is not exactly the most comforting passage he could have taken. Right. And then he has a lack of prudence there, Hector. Like maybe. And I think this is why recall again at the beginning of the text, Agamemnon. Right. And what's going to happen to Troy. Mm. Right. Because I, I think this is kind of book ending um, this passage. I mean, I, this book, I think it is really much about the family, but I also think it's the family contextualized in the fate of Troy. Mm-hmm. And what does that look like? So then, then his son, right? So he kind of talks about like what's going to happen to Troy. Troy's um, doomed to die. You could make an argument there is like he doesn't really say the Achaeans are going to do it. Someone else could do it. But then the fact he talks about Adromache being drug off very much means it sounds like he thinks this is going to happen sometime soon. But then they right? all laugh. Yeah, then they... <coughs> it's like, yeah, we're all going to die. <laughs> it, interesting responses here. Now, he says his son. Let's look at this. Right? He goes for his son, but the boy recoils, uh, cringing against his nurse's full breast, screaming out at the sight of his own father, terrified by the flashing bronze. Everyone has a good laugh at this, and this is actually where we realize that Ho- or uh, excuse me, Hector has worn his helmet mm-hmm. throughout all these interactions. And there is, I think, a certain paternal warmth here, insofar as then he takes his helmet off, mm-hmm. right, for his son. And then this goes into what you mentioned, right, uh, that he then raises his son, he kisses him, he tosses him in his arms, lifting a prayer to Zeus and to the other deathless gods. And yeah, his prayer then. It's interesting to juxtapose his prayer with what he just told his wife. Mm-hmm. Because his prayer is very much like, you know, grant this boy, my son, may be like me, first in glory among the Trojans, strong and brave like me, and rule all Troy in power. And one day let them say he is better than his father. When he comes home from battle bearing the bloody gear of a mortal enemy he has killed in war, a joy to his mother's heart. So he wants his son to be better than he is, which I mean... What, what, what dad doesn't? Yeah, I mean, and this this is you know, this is really your bailiwick, right? The understanding the the family, understanding the role of the father. We should remind our listeners that you're a published author, right? You have a book this is on true. the family, right? Um, Four authors, not not just right. me. So uh, there are some other people that helped, but right. really, no, I'm not going to take credit it. for that. No, 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 right? No, no. So living beyond Sunday. Making your home a holy place, yeah. Right, so just there's kind of a, a practical guide to actually have like a domestic church, how the father can lead, right? right. The role of the mother, how do we raise good children, how do we right. bring virtue and holiness into the home? So here, this is, I think, in a a pagan sense, right? A very, um, but obviously we share a nature, right? We share a human nature, and we see right. and can be very empathetic, you know, with these scenes. Um, these aren't things to be discarded. These are things to be, I think, embraced and learned from. Mm-hmm. I mean, and how many times have you prayed? You know, this is like his. This is a father's prayer, right? That uh, you, your your children, your offspring, will grow up to be virtuous and then grow up to be better than you. Like that's what you desire. Like I want, I want you, I want to teach you uh, to live a virtuous life, so that when when my day comes. You and I'm on my deathbed. You will you you will look at me and say thank you for showing me the Father's love 
the best you can. You know, like yeah. it's it's a uh, it's a, it was a beautiful prayer. That that part of the uh, of this book really got me. Yeah, I think it's beautiful, and it's interesting to juxtapose that with what he just told to Andromache, his wife, of, you know, Troy's going to fall, you'll be sold as a slave, you know, these kind of things. And then look, then he he moves from his son to a commentary about his own fate. And as we kind of track fate, we track the actions of man, the interplay, we're going to have to track very heavily the will of Zeus. How do these things all intertwine for Homer? His statement here is fascinating. So this is 581, he says, No man will hurl me down to death against my fate. In fate, no one alive has ever escaped it. Neither brave man nor coward, I tell you, it's born with us the day we are born. So, you know, he seems to find almost uh, a comfort, right? A abandonment to the role of fate, right? That, listen, no one can actually take me down against my fate. Right, he finds a certain comfort in this, which I find I found a little weird. In like what way? It's almost like a, a like a predestination kind of look at it. Like it doesn't really matter <laughs> what's going to happen. Like we're all, you know, we're all fated to do whatever. So it's almost I don't know. It looked it was very like Calvinistic sounding to me. Well, it's it is interesting in Homer. I mean, one of the things we have to understand is like what, what's our working understanding of the role of fate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're going to see this later, particularly in like book seven, book eight, uh, fate comes in very strongly in certain ways. It, it seems, and I think I'm pulling this from Knox in his commentator commentary where he has a wonderful line in which he talks about that for Homer, fate, destiny is fixed, mm-hmm. but also a bit malleable. Right. right. So there's like this this very much like fate has already set my path, but the actions of men can kind of move it, right? And mm-hmm. we've already kind of seen this, right? Where Ag- where Zeus says, "Okay, time for this side to win," and one of them will pray, and the overall movement probably doesn't stop, but then he spares one or two people or something else, right? So it's this kind of interesting the Homeric concept here is that fate is fixed by the gods or mm-hmm. really maybe just by Zeus. We have to debate whether there's a distinction sure. between Zeus and fate. Yeah. But the actions of men, there's some wiggle room here, right? It's malleable. It's not entirely fixed. Because um, there are a lot of comments here about the actions of men and the actions of the gods or the will of Zeus and fate that are hard to read together, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Okay. I will point out, and this is why I, I noted or observed Agamemnon's a statement, particularly the second time I read um, through this, kind of preparing for the podcast, the the like he does not actually talk about he he changes it completely. He talks about what happens with him, right? That he can in this process that he will die. Andromache sold as a slave. Troy burns. He doesn't talk about the inevitable fate of his son. He actually offers his son up, having a prayer that seemingly does not contain any understanding that Troy is actually going to burn and fall, right? Because the, the norm here, right, would be that the child would be thrown from the walls of Troy, right? The, right. Polis, the polis is taken, the city-state falls, you know, the women are all going to be sold as slaves uh, along with the elderly or the, or the, the you know, adolescent. But the, the infants, right, they're just going to be tossed, you know, from the walls. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting in this juxtaposition here that for his son that heavy fate of Troy does not seem to 
imprint onto his prayer, right? And maybe that's because he simply doesn't want to accept it. Maybe he just has this, you know, what we would call a Hail Mary, right? Mm -hmm. To Zeus is saying, listen, please don't uh, make this happen. So, because look at the responses. So then Andromache goes off, and what does she do? How has she interpreted this? Uh, This is right before 600. So in this house, they raised the dirges for the dead, for Hector still alive. Yeah, they were a little premature there. Yeah, his people were so convinced that never again would he come home from battle, never escape the Argives' rage and bloody hands. So she goes off and starts leading them uh, in a funeral, right? And the dirges for the dead for her husband who's still alive. I mean, that's where she is, right? Mm -hmm. Then, so then they have to rendezvous with Paris. And then, but look at how he talks with Paris, right? 620 or so. You're a good soldier, but you hang back of your own accord. You refuse to fight. Listen, right? Come now for attack. We'll set everything right. And if Zeus will let us, we'll raise the wine bowl of freedom high in our halls, high to the gods of the cloud and sky who live forever once we drive the Argives geared for battle out of Troy. Yeah. I, so when I read that, I was like, he's just, he doesn't want Paris, he's just building it up so that way Paris doesn't bail again. That yeah. Pa- that Paris doesn't lose courage, because just, what, a couple uh, pages back, he's just talking about, like, how everything's going to burn down anyway, you, but I got to go back out and fight. And now he's, like, trying to, trying to say, like, we got a little bit of hope here. Like, we, there's still time to make things right. Like, let's go back out into, into battle. And to me, when I first read that, that's just like the big brother playing the role of big brother so that way little brother doesn't make an, a fool of himself yet again. I, I mean, I do, th- I do think there is a good question there of to what degree does he reveal himself in his heart to different people, mm-hmm. right? So does he know that he's doomed to die? Does he know that, that Troy's doomed to die? But he's playing out this faded role. Mm-hmm. He reveals that to like someone intimate to him, like his wife, mm-hmm. um, you know. But then, like to Paris, who he's trying to get back out to come into the war, as you said. Well, actually, he's you know he's like we could do this, right? right. Zeus will allow us so to not do this, too late. right? It's like is is the fate that malleable? Probably not. A few thoughts. Let's talk about piety. Okay. Right? Yeah. So what is piety? Like it's it's a word that usually when we think of piety, uh, we think of like a pious person. We think of like devotions. Like holy, yeah, yeah. They say the rosary every day. They have these things. But what is, what is piety in a more kind of robust, um, thick sense, uh, more rooted inside the tradition, I think? Mm-hmm. Uh, not that any of those things are bad, but I would say they're fruits of it, mm-hmm. right? But maybe not exactly the heart of it. So piety in the, in the larger Western tradition is born out of gratitude, right? So you you are pious towards the person uh, that you are grateful for. Mm-hmm. And what this means is, is that uh, in, in the, for the ancients, you kind of had this threefold piety. You had piety towards the gods, which is very obvious, right? This is how we normally think about it, because sure. you have to be grateful to them. They've given you everything. They can take everything away, you know, particularly like in this pagan sense. Mm-hmm. And we see this very clearly with Hector, Right. Remember, he, he tells him to pray at the beginning. He won't right. offer this. He's chosen to, you know, go back to the city. Like, his relationship to the gods seems to be very deferential, right? He has this, this piety towards them. He prays to him for his son. Correct. The second kind of rung of pieties, uh, so let's look at them in a hierarchy, right? So the highest mm-hmm. is to the gods. The second one is to your polis, and this is what 
I think sometimes we don't quite see, even though as Americans, we tend to actually play this out a lot, which is we're pious towards our country. Mm-hmm. And one way to look at this is that for the ancients today, all we do is talk about rights, right? I have a right towards this and right towards that. And we all, we immediately jump to our rights, right? Um, but for the ancients, they had a much more, um, I think, clearer understanding of the fact that, you know, you're born into a common good that you really have done nothing, right, to actually contribute to. So, you know, when you're born, so even take like us, right, like a modern example, you know, you're born in uh, to your parents who have already cared for you in the womb, who have already tried to take care of you. You're born in a hospital that you have contributed nothing towards a society that's actually advanced enough to have a hospital that has a peace and a common good that can actually have this type of technology. Right. Like there's all these things that basically as soon as you're born, you're just taking, right? right? And the ancients were very notable to the fact of like, okay, then when I become an adult, part of like actually embracing my citizenry is I need to give back. Right, I have a du- no, I have a duty to give back. Correct. No, you're you're absolutely right. And that's really the operative word. Our gratitude mm-hmm. um, precipitates in us a willingness to carry out a duty, mm-hmm. right? And so we, we, we're pious towards the country, and it's out of that piety that I play out my duty as a good citizen, right? I want her, you know, for us, like I want America to be the best that she can be, right? I want my neighbor uh, to live in a country that actually has... Uh, a proper understanding and playing out of the common good, right? And what can I do to contribute towards my good, the good of my family, the good of my neighbor inside this polis? Right. I mean, I, I think Hector plays this par excellence in a lot of ways. He's not without fault. Uh, we see him critiqued. We see him sometimes hanging back where we're like, you know, we've already mentioned that, like... Where were you, bro? Yeah, where are you? Like, wh- why are you not jumping in here and fixing this? Right. He's not without fault, but he is very pious towards Troy. Right, he's pious toward, and also very cognizant of his role, mm-hmm. and I think grateful for things. And then the third level is is pious towards your parents, and then towards your family, like extended in that concept towards your family. Mm-hmm. And so, for very clear reasons we already mentioned, right? You you're in debt to your parents, and then when you become older, that piety should motivate you uh, to help take care of them as they took care of you, right? Mm-hmm. And they need that. And so we kind of have this this kind of beautiful threefold structure of piety that exists in a hierarchy moving from the family to the polis to the gods. And I think Hector, in a lot of ways, you know, Homer is very, um, this is where things start. These are where the nascent conversations are. This is where the picture starts to become clearer, right, on, on you know, what is a human being and how, how do we see them, what is virtue. And so here we see very clearly, I think, that Hector is being presented as this pious character, right? He has mm-hmm. this kind of threefold piety that we see. And this is why I mentioned earlier that um, Adramache's statements to him of, notice she tempts him with a good, right? She doesn't tempt him with like, hey, let's run away. Mm-hmm. She tempts him with like, don't you care about me? Don't you care about my family? Don't you, you know, our family? Don't you care about our son, right? She uses herself and her son as leverage to get him out of the war. And I think that she really is offering a temptation against proper piety, because what she's offering there is to disorder the hierarchy, right? To put the family above, above say, the polis. the polis, right? And you could argue even above the gods based off what Hector thinks his role is with the gods and what he should be doing. Mm-hmm. And she tempts him, uh, much, like, much like Satan does with um, Adam and Eve, right? She tempts him with a good, right? Mm-hmm. But it's a disordered good if you understand the hierarchy, Right. And so I think right here, what we can see this is a, this is a scene of uh, a temptation against proper piety, and Hector does you know quite well. Some of his rhetoric is interesting, right? You'll you'll be mm-hmm. taken as a slave, etc. 
um, maybe heavy-handed, but I think he <laughs> a maybe, bit. Maybe, I have not yeah. used that as a marital tactic right. in my you know negotiations with uh, my wife sometimes. But I, I think there's something um, as we think of this theme of family. I think Hector shows us right now an example of piety. I I do not think this could be contrasted any more clearly with Agamemnon and Achilles. So think about where we are. T- try and take I a step back. With, I thought you were going to go with Paris. I thought that's like, well, Paris on too. On contrary, it's the it's the exact opposite. I don't think I would argue against that. Right. I think it'd be, it'd be a tough argument. It'd be a tough argument. <laughs> the lawyer in me wants to come out and try. Right. Yeah. Right. But right. no. Okay. So play those out. We'll play out the Paris one. Yeah. So I was thinking about that. Like as you were talking, you're like, okay. So how? On the contrary of, of what we just saw with, uh, with Hector, Paris from I guess the lowest good to the highest. So starting off with families is clearly putting uh, his own appetites and lust over his family, uh, mm-hmm. bringing in you know bringing Helen over, uh, causing disgrace probably to his father. Where it, having his having to have it preempt like choose some of the goods uh, of his son over the goods of his pole. So it's, right. like, it's a tr- it's a like a ripple down effect. It's a domino effect, right? Because mm-hmm. his, his actions are now causing some of his family members to have to disorder their goods. Uh, then obviously with the polis, with like, you know, there's the whole war thing probably. Yes, yeah, that's, that's, that's a that's negative. The whole thousand ships have been launched. launched that's yeah, negative. Yeah, the whole, that whole thing. And then, <coughs> and then I was like trying to think in my head, okay, well, uh, in regards to uh, the gods, um, then I started thinking. I started playing the devil's advocate in my head, and, and so I was like, "I'm not sure. Like, is this part well, of fate? The, is this part of like, you know?" Yeah. The problem with the the problem here is that we're still dealing with a pantheon, right? right. So in certain ways, you can say, "Well, look, Paris is clearly favored by Aphrodite, so right. isn't he pious towards her?" That's what. Yeah. Right. I mean, you could you could play that game. Uh, we're still kind of waiting for Homer to reveal to us like why does Aphrodite like him, and why do some of the gods like Athena and Hera absolutely despise him? Right. But I think that honestly, um, yeah, I mean, one thing you it just kind of occurs to me, one thing you could argue is that he has, assuming he has culpability for his actions, which I, I, th- I think is clear in the text to some degree, um, this is, he has caused a chain of events in certain ways that the favored city of Zeus, who's, that Zeus admits is my favorite city, mm-hmm. right, is being destroyed. Right. Right. Now, granted, you know, there's also things at the very beginning of the myth that basically Zeus might have put all this stuff in motion, right? Right. So again, we get back to this, Zeus kind of stands above everything and, and his will, you know, plays out. Um, yeah, I think the contrast with Paris is clear. And then kind of think about Hector back with his family having, yes, it's a temptation of piety, but let's not lose sight of like, it's an overall kind of, I think, warm embrace his son. I mean, clearly, very endearing. all we're hearing about is people getting speared in the face, their right. tongues getting chopped off. I mean, all kinds of, you know, get a stone thrown at you, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And now we get this like lifting up of your son. Right. We get laughing. Like right. laughing is an interesting thing that happened in the yeah. Iliad, right? Yeah. We get laughing. Um, and then I, in my head, I contrasted it with, you know, Achilles and Agamemnon. Uh, Agamemnon throws his wife under the bus and says, hey, you know, remember, what was that wonderful phrase he has? Like, I love her more in... Uh, breed and birth or whatever he says about like the slave girl that he likes more than his wife. As an expert uh, in, in quote unquote, the domestic church, don't take his tactics. Right. It's a negative. Don't, don't run after the slave girl. So, you know, and then also Achilles, right? Um, these are not family men. These are not, I mean, right. nothing. And so I think we are giving, being given a, a very clear uh, contrast here. The, um, the, the subject of, 
of piety, and we'll kind of end on this, because um, I, I think it's a good point to bring up the subject, is virtue. We've used the word, right? Um, you know, we, we have to be kind of somewhat careful, and this is kind of a challenge in reading Homer, is Homer really is like, it's the soil. Like, what, what did the West grow out of, right? Where did, you know, we've kind of talked about this, that the, the coming of the incarnation of Christ, right, the Son of God, happens in this culture in which Greek reason and Hebrew faith come together under Roman order, right? This is not accidental, right? Providence has tilled the soil mm-hmm. for the coming of Jesus Christ, that we could understand the Logos, reason itself becomes incarnate mm-hmm. uh, and then loves us and dies for us and, and um, you know, the, the, you know, gospel narrative. And so we have to be careful a little bit when we look back at Homer in certain ways, obviously, we look back at him through the lens of Christ to understand the truth and to pull things out. But when we say virtue, we have to be careful that, like, you know, when we say Hector is virtuous, we're kind of looking back at him, at Hector, uh, through kind of the lens of, of a much more developed virtue tradition, right? Through St. Thomas Aquinas, through right. Aristotle, right? Where we're saying, oh, it's a virtue. It's a good habit, mm-hmm. right? It habituates you to the good. We're thinking of like, oh, look, we've got the natural virtues, right? We've got prudence and justice and temperance and fortitude. Like we have this very robust, um, developed virtue tradition. And I think one way to look at this is that for Homer, this is just starting, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the questions here um, that we have to look at, so in the in the Greek Right, virtue uh, comes from virtus, which is a Latin term. So, and our guide talks about this um, a lot. Our guide talks about the piety. By the way, if you if you enjoyed that discussion, there's I, I think a, a detailed conversation about piety. There's also a detailed conversation about virtue. So, in the Greek, you have arete or arete, right, which basically means excellence, mm-hmm. right. So, there's a certain excellence. So, virtue can be seen as an excellence, right? Virtue comes, like I said, from the from the Latin side. And so, the question really is then, what is for Homer? Right, so we're Homer's at 850 BC. What does he see as virtue? And why is this? So, what what is kind of the debate here? Well, we can have a long discussion about the etymology, right? The meaning, the study of a word, like where does it come from? About mm-hmm. this RIT, right? This excellence in the Greek. One aspect is one one theory is that it comes from Ares. Now, that's that usually is like, wait, what? Why would god that? Of war? Yeah, the god of war. Why would that happen? Well, because there's there's a theory that like when this excellence, this this kind of masculine excellence starts to take root, the first thing we see like in this Bronze Age is, oh, well, this is an excellence in war, right? How are you an excellent man? Well, you you throw the spear, right? You don't right. Fight, it's bravery, like just kind of like the core aspects of masculinity, right? You you stand up in warfare. Mm-hmm. In this kind of context, then if you looked at it that kind of like flatly. Um, then Achilles, right? He's the best warrior that we know of in the Iliad. Right. He would also be the most virtuous. That's probably, even though we're only on what? book? What is this? Book six? six. Yeah. That probably doesn't sit well with most people already, right? right? It's like, well, what about Hector? And I like him and his the family. And like, he's right. having to deal with all these things. And Achilles is crying by his ships while his own men are being slaughtered. Right. So the question here then <coughs> is that it is notable that Homer is starting to kind of use this word to describe excellence more broadly. And even in, at least once in the Odyssey, he will use it to describe um, a woman. He'll use it to describe um, Odysseus's wife, Penelope. And actually, it's about her cleverness. So all of a sudden, we're, what we're seeing is there seems to be this root word that might have been attached to military prowess, 
but it's starting to grow. It's starting to develop. And so the question is here in the Iliad is, is Homer starting to challenge the notion of virtue for his audience, Mm -hmm. right? And keep in mind, his audience are aristocratic Greeks. Why is he offering them such a picture of Hector, a Trojan? Why is Hector the one that's actually going in? Like, is he using Hector as a Trojan Mm -hmm. to contrast to his aristocratic Greeks on what virtue actually is, right? Is he, and I, I think the answer is yes, Homer is Homer the teacher setting up a contrast between Achilles and Homer, excuse me, and Hector, and what is true virtue? Like, is it just really being good in battle? Or is it actually, is, is the excellence of a man something broader, right? Because what we're going to see then as this, as this tradition continues is by the time you get to classical Greece, so say like, you know, the, the 400s, the 300s, by the time you get to Plato, right, and Socrates, they'll be talking about, you know, the, the virtue, the excellence of a horse, of a knife. Uh, everything has it, right? Because everything is like, um, you know, we can understand the excellence of things because we understand their purpose, right? So just, you know, his, he has a classic example in the Republic of talking about a pruning knife. So it's like, okay, well, what's the, what's the virtue of a knife? What's, or another way to ask it is, what's a good knife? Mm-hmm. Okay, right. well. It's sharp. It's, it's sharp. sharp. And the reason you know that a good knife is sharp, right? It has the virtue or excellence of being sharp is because you understand the purpose. Right. I know the purpose of a knife is to cut. So a virtuous knife, a good knife, right? Its excellence would be in sharpness. It's uh, the opposite here would be its vice, its viciousness, mm-hmm. right? Would be that it's dull, something that impede or brittle, something that would impede it from carrying out its purpose. Its end. Right. It's, yeah, it's, um, its purpose, its end, its telos, Right, in the Greek, telos? or telos, 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 or te- well, it's also teleology, right, the study of the ends. I hear both. Again, on this podcast, we're just going to say things and say things with confidence and move on. The only, re- only reason why I ask <coughs> is, is like, dang it, I've been saying it wrong for so long. I say long. telos most of the time. I say telos. I say yeah. telos most of the time. So, but then again, you, I'm also I mean, the one who just... I allowed to say it wrong. I, <laughs> <laughs> I'm also the one who just pointed out that in most of these pronunciations, in, according to uh, Fagels, they're always a long E. So, but the point here, right, is that um, with a knife, you understand its purpose. Therefore, you understand if you understand its purpose is the cut, then you understand that the good knife would be sharp, the bad knife would be dull. You also then understand what is good or bad for the knife, mm-hmm. right? So the whetstone is good for the knife because it makes it sharp. Grinding it on concrete would be bad because it's contrary to its purpose because it makes it dull. Obviously, the birth of philosophy in a lot of different ways mm-hmm. starts with the question then, well, then what is a good man? And if we play this out, the problem is, is like you might have all these things you say, like, oh, well, a good man's this and that and that. But just like the knife, you cannot understand the question of what is a good man if you do not understand the purpose of man. And that question gets taken up explicitly by, um, you know, Plato with Socrates in the Republic. And this is where this conversation has its seeds, right? Right. In this kind of juxtaposition between Achilles and Hector, we are asking ourselves, what does it mean to be an excellent man? Mm-hmm. Is it just that I can grab the slave girl I want? Is it just that I have this, you know, um, kind of brutality and I can conquer my enemies and I can Exercise do these things? Exercise my power whenever I want, right. however I want. Right, and we're, we're seeing, you know, somewhat of a resurgence of this today, right? Like, is this really masculinity that I just have this brutal, somewhat uh, primal will to power and I can overthrow everyone around me? Right. Or is the excellence found more with someone like Hector who's, having this piety that cares for his family, cares for his parents, cares for his polis, cares for the gods, 
I think this is the contrast that we're kind of being invited to make uh, in book six. Boom. Love it. Any other conclusions, insights? Well, if I don't, there's no way I'm going to beat that conclusion. So, <laughs> well, uh, I just, I think this is where, <coughs> excuse me. I think this is where, uh, where we are. So, yeah. so I, I do have an ask, uh, if you've made it past it, I don't know how, how long this, this episode's going, but it's, it, um, but if you made it to the end here, I have an ask, uh, if you would uh, rate and review our podcast for us, help us and, and, you know, share it with a friend. There's, uh, we're going to go all through the Iliad, so it's not too late to start. It's not too late to even jump in. This is why we even talk about the uh, intros. We give kind of a, a brief summary, so even if you haven't had a chance to uh, read it yet, uh, this would be a good primer for you. And then we also we obviously have the guides that mm-hmm. uh, we put together. You can, you can go check that out on our website, thegreatbookspodcast.com, uh, and you can um, be able to, to, to see those. So, yeah, in order for us to continue growing this thing, it would be great if you could help rate and review it if you like it if you don't like it uh you can just turn it off that's fine i mean you don't have to rate and review right. it but. but we enjoy it I, I enjoy the conversations i enjoy kind of being on this journey together having yeah. homer as a teacher pursuing truth the beautiful the good right I enjoy it yeah and we'll see book seven uh i don't i don't like it so just book seven the get ready good i look forward to your arguments all right uh as always deacon it's it's, it's been a pleasure thanks adam see you next week